Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, July 8th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Is the Delta variant going to ruin our post-pandemic summer? Stats Helen Branswell joins us for a COVID update. It's hard to believe, but the year is half over. Our stat colleague Mario Aguilar joins us to chat about the latest deal-making in the world of health tech. And we'll start with some quick takes on this week in biotech, but first, a word from our sponsor. Support for this podcast comes from Houston Methodist Hospital. Dr. James Musser and his colleagues at the Houston Methodist Research Institute sequenced 20,453 specimens from COVID-19 patients starting in March 2020. Visit the Leading Medicine blog on HoustonMethodist.org to learn more. So what would this podcast be if it didn't start with an update on... Adam and Damien's favorite drug, Adam. <laughs> Guys, there's more news uh, on that front this week. Catch us up. Right. So the, the hot off the presses aspect came out just Thursday morning, which is that the FDA restricted the label for which Aduhelm is approved, basically uh, advising doctors to prescribe the drug solely to patients who mostly match the population in which it was studied in phase three trials. This, I mean, the implications of this, we can, we can kind of talk about, but, you know, one of the shocking things, really probably to me the most shocking thing on the day that Aduhelm was approved was the breadth of the FDA's label. The drug was indicated for anyone with Alzheimer's disease at any stage of the disease, uh, regardless of what their sort of brain biology was. And as we know, this drug is meant to clear out plaques from the brain that purported to contribute to the advance of Alzheimer's. And so, you know, that label was fairly galling, honestly. And so the FDA mostly walking it back to what people had expected for those people who even expected approval uh, was interesting. I feel like it might have fewer implications for the way the drug is actually used because I think that physicians and definitely Biogen were thinking that that it would only go to to this narrower group of patients, but maybe just has more more implications for you know our, our fixation on the FDA and what is going on there. Yeah, I think this speaks to, in part, it speaks to the FDA. It's kind of a tacit acknowledgement that. They may have been overly permissive with the approval, and of course, they've gotten a lot of criticism for uh, the approval and the way the way the drug was approved. Um, you know, right? So the drug now, you know, now the label basically suggests you know use this drug in for patients who are at the earliest stages of the disease, and not used in patients with more advanced disease. I think you know what again get you know echoing what you said, Damien, you know, when the drug was approved, uh, and the FDA not only gave it this incredibly broad label, but actually endorsed the use of the drug in, in all patients. And Damien, you and I were on a media call with Peter Stein, you know, one of the top uh, FDA officials who who basically said that because this drug targets beta amyloid plaques and uh, that, you know, this could have a benefit for all patients. And I think people were really taken aback by that because clearly the clinical data don't show that, right? This, this drug has only been studied in patients with, with early stage Alzheimer's. So, you know, looking at Biogen's statement on this, which you guys quote, you know, from Al Sandrock, um, 
They suggest that it was based on their own conversations with physicians, the FDA, patient advocates, that they submitted this label update. And then you quote Ramsey Baghdadi, uh, one of these policy analysts uh, in D.C. Uh, from Provision Policy, um, who says it's really unusual for a company to request narrowing its own label. It, do you think that is the what precipitated this change? Or I mean, it seems kind of funny as you're laying out the FDA made the case for a broader potential use of this. And now it's suddenly saying, wait, 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 never mind. What do you think happened? Yeah, I've heard different things about it. I, I've actually heard that, you know, this is a little bit more nuanced that I don't think it's necessarily Biogen going to the FDA and asking for this change. I think it was more, you know, it could have been the FDA asking and talking to Biogen. It could have been sort of a joint decision making process here. You know, I, like Damien alluded to before, you know, Biogen from the earliest days, you know, was kind of, I think they were, they might have been sort of taken aback by the broad label because, you know, they they basically said from the very beginning that they were only going to market the drug for patients with early Alzheimer's and they really weren't going to target uh, patients with advanced disease. Um, so, you know, from a, like, you know, from a commercial standpoint, this probably doesn't mean very much. But, you know, I think the the fact that they changed the label, like, you know, look, it's it's basically it's exactly one month, right? I mean, we're, we're recording <laughs> yeah. this on, well, I'm sorry, it's the day. one day and one month um, since the drug was approved. And already we're getting uh, a, a, a revision to the label, which, you know, seems pretty unprecedented. The one thing I would add, though, that that is... When we're trying to pick apart, you know, who initiated what and whose authorial hand is on this decision, it is worth considering that just in the past few weeks and, and really intensifying over, over the past week, really, since since our story about the interactions between FDA and Biogen uh, in the run up to this approval, there have been many, many calls for investigations into just what happened. I mean, most recently, Representative Katie Porter from California called for the Office of Inspector General to look into how this drug was approved and, and how sponsors play a role in FDA approvals. Uh, former Health Secretary Donna Shalala had, had called for similar uh, a week before. And so there is this escalation of pressure on the FDA to explain how this happened. I'm not saying that necessarily put this process in motion, but I think taken as a whole, it feels like this is something that precipitated from that pressure and also might simply be a step in the larger saga that we're going to be kind of in the passenger seat for in the months to come as people really pick apart how this approval happened. All right, let's shift to another ever-present topic on this podcast, that being COVID. And let me throw this to Meg. Um, do, do you feel like the United States is kind of over COVID and that we're sort of in this summer, post-pandemic <laughs> summer that we're all enjoying ourselves now? I think a lot of people want to be in that position, but you know, it's funny as as we were talking about the episode for this week, I was kind of noting to you guys my day to day covering COVID on CNBC, a business news network, has really slowed down. Um, and then I woke up Thursday morning and the market was indicated down 450 points at the open. People were really worried about the spread of Delta, mostly outside the U.S. Uh, we're going to have Helen Branswell on to talk with us about her worries about that, which will be the best absolute barometer I think we could get. Um, but we're absolutely seeing these scary numbers in certain parts of the country that have lower vaccination rates. Um, in Missouri, in particular, stories about hospitals not having enough ventilators. It feels like deja vu, and it's really scary. So it's this continuing split of the country into the vaccinated and the under-vaccinated areas. And at the same time, people are getting concerned about 
new additional variants. You know, we've been talking so much about Delta, this hypertransmissible variant, to use Rochelle Walensky, the CDC director's word for it. But uh, earlier this week, um, our seven o'clock show, the Shep Smith show on CNBC, um, asked me to do a look at Lambda. Um, that's another variant that's spreading quickly in South America. So um, there's there's more happening around the world. And of course, the, the warning is that in countries without vaccines or with few vaccines, the variants will keep emerging. And the one that everybody's concerned about is one that is not only more transmissible, but also escapes our immune protections. So far, we haven't seen that. And Andy Slavitt on his podcast this week um, had one of his guests actually said Delta in some ways might be our friend because it outcompetes the scarier variants that might have more mm. of an impact on our vaccines protections like B1351 or beta, the, the South African variant, or P1 from Brazil, which I think is called gamma now. Um, they are getting outcompeted by Delta, which our vaccines do seem to hold up fairly well against. Even just on the cultural side, it's been kind of surreal to see there was a documentary that I saw advertised that's about you know the day all the bars in New York closed in March. And then likewise, there's a uh, National Geographic documentary where they they shadowed a hospital near me here in Queens, both of which are premiering soon or had premieres recently. And that just seems so out of step with Meg, as you mentioned, you know, the, the present in so many places in this country and obviously around the world is so much more akin to March of 2020 in New York City that having movies about it as though it is this historical thing to look back on just seems I have no interest in seeing those movies, first of all, because it seems too real, but also just surreal to, to fathom as we move forward. So we're now joined by our stat colleague, Helen Branswell. And, you know, Helen, I was telling the gang earlier that you are my COVID barometer. Like, I, I feel like I need to speak to you frequently just to get a sense of how things are going. So so give us your <laughs> give us your sense of that. Um, are you speaking <laughs> specifically here about the Delta variant, uh, Adam? Or... I think so. I mean, you know, there's been right. There's been so much uh, talk now and, and concern about the Delta variant. And and I guess I'm wondering whether, you know, how serious this is and, you know, and whether this is going to ruin our post pandemic summer. I think the answer to that probably depends on whether or not you're vaccinated, um, you know, this is a worrying development. This variant seems to be able to spread, you know, quite a bit more efficiently than uh, the alpha variant, which spread quite a bit more efficiently than the original virus that came out of China. So it's like the, the virus keeps upping its game a bit, right? And um, so far, the vaccines have been sort of holding their ground. You'll remember that even uh, Johnson Johnson, they issued a statement late last week that uh, they tested their vaccine against the new variant. And even though it's a one dose, it seems still to be effective against it. So, you know, for people who are fully vaccinated, it doesn't mean you don't have any risk of, of contracting COVID, but your risk is a lot lower. And if you get it, um, you know, there are early signs that um, 
it could be less severe. CDC pushed out a paper, an MMWR last week that um, showed that among um, in vaccinated healthcare workers who contracted COVID, they were sick for less time, you know, a couple fewer days. They were out of bed sooner. They had less fever. So, you know, even if somebody with, who's been vaccinated contracts this, they're probably going to be you know, fine and certainly better off than somebody who wasn't vaccinated. The real danger is for people who aren't vaccinated right now. So beyond, you know, specific variants and vaccine efficacy against them, the fact that we are seeing new variants arise and cause concern, does that suggest that, you know, as many experts thought, you know, starting months ago, that COVID-19 is something that will be with us for quite some time to come, despite the the fact that we have these effective vaccines? Well, we have these effective vaccines, but most of the right. world doesn't, Damien. So, um, you know, as long as there are huge, huge swaths of people around the globe who aren't vaccinated, this is what's going to happen. Um, you know, viruses mutate and uh, the ones that have mutations that give them an advantage over the others, they become dominant. We've seen it you know, in several waves now, starting with the alpha variant. Um, So, you know, we should expect that this will continue to happen. Um, I don't know that this means that, you know, we're going to see the the virus ratchet up lethality, for instance. I don't know that that would be true. But but as long as this virus... um, is allowed to circulate in people, it will continue to change and make the job of controlling it harder. Helen, we were talking about earlier just the fact that suddenly, at least in the the world of financial markets, people seem to have suddenly Thursday morning woken up and said, uh-oh, Delta's really bad. Uh, you know, markets are down Thursday morning, about 450 points. Um, so from the CNBC perspective, Delta is a huge story. But why... Why today? You know, I'm not sure. I know in our newsroom yesterday, there was sort of this this drumbeat of alarm about Delta and the need to have more stories. And I was wondering myself, you know, what's changed? Um, certainly WHO had a, a briefing yesterday. They're now briefing, I think, about once a week. And it was the first one they'd had for a few days. And um, they were, you know very clear about their concern. Uh, Maria Van Kerkhoff, their lead coronavirus expert, was talking about the fact that a number of countries have vertical transmission rates right now, which is really not where you want to be. And a number of countries that have managed throughout the pandemic to really keep transmission to low levels are starting to lose control. And that's that's problematic. I, I, you know, if I had to guess, I, I didn't hear anything that I, that I thought was a trigger of that kind of an alarm, Meg. I do wonder if it has something to do with people coming back from the long weekend and starting to pay attention again, and you know, everybody sort of snapping to at the same time. I, I don't know. I hope it's that. I hope it's not something that uh, that I've missed. Hey, Helen, you know, bringing the conversation back to the U.S., um, we know that there's a stubbornly large percentage of the U.S. population that, you know, is refusing or doesn't want to get vaccinated. And I wonder, do you think that these kind of more dire warnings or, you know, increases in in infection rates due to the the Delta variant, do you think that's going to change anything? I know we've seen like outbreaks in, I think, Missouri, 
where it seems to be tied to sort of low vaccination rates overall. Um, is that going to change public opinion, do you think? So I really, I don't know, Adam. Uh, Missouri is having a really big problem. Yes, Nevada as well. Um, Arkansas, you know, states where rates are, vaccination rates are low. Um, you'd hope that if, you know, people see this happening in their community, that um, that it, they would take it more seriously and realize that it's a problem and realize that it's a threat that they actually face. But I, I don't know. I read this very um, moving story in the uh, Washington Post the other day. I think his name was Pete Jamison had gone to Appalachia and talked to some nurses there who were, you know, working throughout the pandemic, exhausted, having seen far, far too many people die. And in those communities, there's still complete, you know, deep embedded resistance to the notion that this is anything more than the uh, uh, the flu. They, the, you know, there are people who are watching loved ones die and just disbelieving that this coronavirus is what the rest of the world is telling them that it is. So um, while I would hope that, um, you know, rising rates would make people reconsider their position on vaccination. I'm not, I'm not sure I'd bet a lot of money on it, you know. So speaking of the actual flu influenza, you know, last winter in this country, at least people were mostly abiding by staying home, wearing masks, etc. And that seemed to lead to a very mild season of the in the fall and winter of the infections that we would expect to see every year. Looking ahead to this fall and winter, as, as so much of the United States is kind of opening back up, are people concerned about, you know, that there might be this kind of double whammy of a potential, you know, increase in COVID-19 cases with these variants, but also the return of the sort of infection rates that we're used to seeing annually? Yeah, people are concerned about the the return of the other pathogens. Um, and, and some of them have started to return a little bit. There's been sort of an uptick in, um, some of the respiratory pathogens that infect little kids. There were rising rates, you know, in, in May and June. Um, if you're talking strictly about influenza, you're right. The rates last year were almost non-existent. I mean, one child died in the United States from flu in the 20, 21 uh, flu season, which is just extraordinary. Um, you know, often it's somewhere between 130 and 200 children a year who die from flu in the U.S. Um, but, you know, going forward, it's not clear if if this coming season will be a severe flu season. Normally, uh, the northern hemisphere watches the southern hemisphere to see what's happening there to try to gauge um, what might be coming at us. And it, flu is still transmitting at extremely low rates in the southern hemisphere where it is now, you know, winter and, and would normally be f flu season. So, you know, it it could be that this coming winter won't be the big bad flu season that people are expecting. It may take a little bit longer for flu to rebound, but people are worried that there will be a bad flu season coming in the not too distant future. 
Well, Helen, you know, as Adam mentioned at the top, we look to you as a barometer for how worried we should be. And so I'm wondering if you don't mind if I ask you personally, how are you like going out into the world these days? Um, Are you still wearing a mask inside? Do you eat indoors at restaurants? Are you comfortable seeing colleagues like working at your desk? Like, And and are these fears around Delta making you um, reconsider any of the sort of more freedoms you might have taken um, before we started worrying about this? Helen and I are having dinner next week. Jealous. Inside or outside? (laughs) I think it's going to be inside, yes. Yeah. I did eat um, in a restaurant indoors over the weekend, and it was the first time that I had. Um, I'm not wearing a mask when I'm, you know, on my bike or walking around. Um, I do put them on when I go into stores. It's kind of more of a courtesy thing. You know, I'm not feeling, like, super anxious at this point, It'll be interesting to see. We're going back into the office starting next week. Um, it'll be great to see everybody, but it would be weird too. <laughs> <laughs> I look for. I look forward to seeing you, for sure. <laughs> well, I'm thinking about making banana bread, but um, <laughs> you know, ask me that question in September when things start to get cooler and we see what happened over the summer with rates and. Um, we'll see what I answer then. And our listeners should know that Helen's banana bread <laughs> is amazing. So I look forward to eating that next week when I see you, Helen. <laughs> it will be great to see you. You coming in, Davian? You know, I had planned on it, and then uh, I realized that it's next week, and I didn't get my act together. So soon, though. Oh, good. be great to see you. Helen, thanks a lot for your time once again. Thanks for having me. We wanted to interrupt the podcast for one moment to let listeners know about a very cool stat event that is coming up soon. It's called the Breakthrough Science Summit, and as its name implies, we will be exploring breakthroughs in technology and procedures that have remade the world of health and medicine. With our keynote speakers, we'll take you inside these innovations, examining how they're developed, adopted, and paid for. We'll also take a look at the breakthroughs that haven't yet hit the market, but have the potential to redefine health and medicine in the years to come. The list of speakers is long and distinguished, but among them are Jim Allison, the Nobel Prize winning immunologist and godfather of cancer immunotherapy, Francis Collins, director of the NIH, and Katherine Jansen, the Pfizer vaccine scientist who helped, of course, create its COVID-19 vaccine. This is a virtual event running over two days next week, July 13th and 14th. Listeners of this podcast can get a discount on registration. Go to statnews.com slash summit and use the discount code POD all lowercase. We've talked a lot about how the COVID-19 pandemic has led to unprecedented investor interest in biotech, but the world of digital health, fueled by a boom in virtual care, has arguably fared better, with previously obscure companies reaching billion-dollar valuations through a breathless series of deals. This week, Stat rounded up some of the most intriguing digital health transactions of the first half of 2021. And joining us to discuss a few of them is health tech correspondent Mario Aguilar. Mario, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, it's great to be back. So one of the big trends this year has been technology targeting mental health. Uh, We've seen massive amounts of money flowing into companies like Lyra Health, Modern Health, and Ginger. So Mario, what exactly do these firms do? And how will we know whether they're worth their valuations? Well, well, you're right that these firms have raised gigantic sums. Lyra has put together two rounds totaling nearly $400 million, um, at a valuation of nearly $5 billion. 
Modern Health and Ginger both valued over one billion following these rounds. Um, I mean, what investors see here is a potentially huge market um, that needs a service that they can't get. Fundamentally, there's a shortage of supply in therapists and an excessive demand for what they offer. Um, so the companies that can figure out how to use tech to increase the reach of all of those therapists um, are potentially winners. Um, so in the early days of the market, we talked about Talkspace and Headspace, um, which were consumer-facing apps. Um, the former sort of connects you to a therapist via chat and maybe via video or audio. Um, the latter is like meditation and other exercises. Now, what we're seeing now is sort of a, a sort of evolution of those kinds of products. Um, Lyra and Modern Health, those products target employers who want to provide health benefits to their employees. Um, and if you want to move the needle in the world of healthcare quickly, employer benefits plans are a very good way to do it. Up until now, you know, companies have commonly offered employee assistance plans, which are, you know, basically a phone number that you call, try to get help or counseling. And um, I don't want to say that they are worthless, but in my personal experience, they're, they're substandard. Um, so what these companies do is basically offer a better EAP. Um, as to whether these companies are worth the money and their huge valuations, I mean, I think in talking to investors, it's really clear that there's going to be a couple of huge winners in the space. There's just too much opportunity. But there's also like a lot of complexity in the market. Um, so like companies target all sorts of different buyers, right? Health plans, uh, employers, increasingly Medicaid, some are direct to consumer. Um, some companies sort of have general offerings for anxiety and depression, um, while others sort of target specific conditions. Um, what I've heard investors tell me is if you look at Lira's valuation, if you invest at a valuation of $5 billion, you're sort of betting that that company is worth $10 billion. Um, which if you're worth $10 billion in healthcare, you won the category. You are the winner. Uh, if you don't think Lyra is the winner, then that's a bad investment. Um, so it sort of remains to be seen who the winners are, um, but probably some of the valuations are a little much. So sort of on that same topic, I wanted to ask you about SPACs, the blank check companies that have been kind of all the rage on Wall Street over the past 12 months plus. It seems, at least externally, there have been a lot of SPACs in digital health. And I was curious about the dynamics of that. Like, have they been more popular among consumer facing companies? And then, you know, maybe more broadly, has the general concern about peak SPAC and, and SPAC overvaluation, has that seeped into health tech? In terms of it being peak SPAC, I, you know, I'll, I'll give you a couple numbers that are out just this week. You know, we're, we're halfway through the year. Um, this is Rock Health, which is an investment firm. So they figure that of the 11 companies that have successfully gone public in digital health this year, five have been SPACs. Of the ones that are expected to go public in the rest of the year, they're all SPACs. There's 11 that are already ready to go. Um, in terms of being peak SPAC, there are 39 healthcare-focused uh, SPACs looking for a target right now. So they have two years to get that done. I think that we may have reached peak SPAC in terms of these companies going public themselves, like the, the blank check companies themselves going public. But in terms of them sort of acquiring companies, we've got, you know, 200 out there in, in, the, in the investment world generally, and 39 just focused on healthcare. 
So as we mentioned somewhat inconceivably, it is halfway through 2021. What are you expecting for the rest of the year in health tech? Well, first of all, more SPACs, right? Like there's definitely going to be more SPAC transactions. There's just too much money there and a lot of uh, investors who definitely want to see their dreams realized on that front and digital health companies that are that sort of see the opportunity right now. Like there were a couple of years a few years ago when no digital health companies went public. Zero. Right. The time is now um, is what I heard one investor say, like, if you want to go public, you hit and you're ready to go. You hit the market perfectly. You're going to get a good valuation. It's time to go. Um, I think a couple of other areas to look at are regulation. Um, for example, the FDA sort of loosened a number of regulations and made a lot of things possible in the world of virtual care, telehealth that weren't possible previously. Um, and it'll be interesting to see whether or not it sticks to those or whether some of those rules are made permanent. One that I watch sort of pretty closely is sort of loosened regulation around um, treatments for certain mental health disorders, which the FDA allowed to be sort of marketed or deployed into the market, you know, without uh, clearance, which was an interesting change. Um, another thing to watch is sort of the evolution of telehealth. We've talked a lot about how it was the year of virtual care, but, you know, a lot of these telehealth companies have become sort of commoditized. Their, their, their offering is not especially careful. The, the move towards telehealth forced a lot of big health systems to like disrupt themselves. They didn't go with an outside provider. They just figured out how to do it. Right. And so instead of going and contracting with an outside firm to, to add that capability, they're like, no, we can do this. We got it under control. Um, and you also have the issue that they may not want to outsource big health systems that have spent um, years acquiring sort of clinician capacity by acquiring different uh, practices uh, are not going to say all of a sudden, well, I'm all of this stuff that I spent money on, like, let's, you know, I can go to Teladoc or whatever. They're going to figure out how to make use of that internal capacity, which may make some of the big winners in sort of certain areas of um, telehealth and virtual care less attractive um, as uh, possible, you know, clients. Mario, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and if you've gone into a bar yet. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. 